We are in Genesis, and so you're welcome to turn to Genesis chapter 1. But um, this morning, I'm going to be talking about the biblical view of sexual morality. Thousands of pastors today are standing before congregations preaching on this very, this very subject, the biblical view of sexual morality. Um, and we are standing with, in solidarity with our Canadian pastors who are also preaching on this, various, this, the, this very subject. Because this last Monday in Canada, there was a bill that was passed, Bill C-4, that potentially threatens parents and churches that proclaim the gospel message, attempting to convert someone who is struggling with homosexual or transgender issues. Let me just read you a portion of the preamble of this bill. It says this, Conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths. Like the truth of God's word and what he's, what God says about human sexuality is considered a myth. So based on, on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality Cisgender gender identity and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over the sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. Now, I want to say up front, when it comes to um, conversion therapy, that there is no pastor who is supportive of coercive or abusive conversion therapy. We are talking about those who struggle with homosexuality or their gender, transgenderism, and are looking for help to get out of their ungodly lifestyle. The church needs to be a ministry and be, have the, the opportunity to proclaim the gospel unhindered as to what God says at being set free from sin and death. And a person who causes another person to undergo anything deemed conversion therapy and the message of salvation, the message of the gospel would be considered conversion therapy, those people could face up to five years in prison. So that bill was passed Monday. So today, thousands of pastors in both the United States and Canada are talking about what the Bible says about sexual Morality. Now, my words today, a lot of my words, are going to be coming from a book written by Vodi Bauckham. 
Uh, the title of the book is Expository Apologetics. It's a good book. I would recommend every parent uh, pick up a copy of this book. It would help you in discipling your children uh, through this matter. And I understand, uh, mom and dad, that your children are being inundated on this subject matter. And I'm going to talk more about that in a moment. But the place to start is the beginning book of the Bible when it comes to uh, God's view of sexual uh, morality. So Genesis chapter 1, we've been there already as we've been walking through the book of Genesis. And so this is going to be a bit of review. But uh, I want to read verses 26 through 31 and then jump to Genesis chapter 2. But this is what God did on the sixth day of creation. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and of the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, every tree. With seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heaven, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything he made. And and behold, it was very good. God concluded each day of his, commu- of his creation said, and it was good. But when God created man and woman, he said, it is very good. Now jump to chapter 2, and let's look at verses 18 through 25. And this is more commentary on what God did on day 6 when he created Adam and Eve. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever man called every living creature, that was its name. Then man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man while he was, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman 
because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, that they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this is the beginning. This is where we get our idea of marriage and the purpose of marriage and the fact that God has has created us male and female. There's nothing in between. There's not to be any confusion about that, that this is this is God's creation. This was what God has done. Uh, and this is what God had intended from the very beginning. And that as Christians, as people created in the image of God, we're not to deviate from that, but to accept what God has done in our life. You know, we didn't have a we didn't have a say in who our parents were going to be. And just as we didn't have a say in who our parents were going to be, guess what? We didn't have a say in what our gender uh, was to be. That was God's will. That was God's plan. That was God's purpose. And so today, we live in a world that wants to ignore that truth, that wants to obliterate that truth, will not recognize that truth. And as a church, as believers in Christ, we need to be people who stand up for what the word of God says. And just know that when we stand, when we speak truth, people who don't get agree with that uh, are, are going to hate you. They're not going to listen to what you have to say. But regardless, we need to be people of the truth. Now, one of the arguments that people make who um, embrace sexual immorality and homosexuality or transgenderism, they like to use the Jesus argument. And the Jesus argument is this. Well, you know, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. And the way you answer that question is, yes, he did. He may never have used the word homosexuality, but Jesus referred to, talked about homosexuality when he talked about marriage. When he went back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and taught us of what marriage was all about. Jesus's idea of marriage, about gender identity, is rooted in Genesis 1 and 2. Go to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 for a moment. Let me read verses 3 through 6. Jesus talked about um, marriage in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19. And this is what he says in verse 3. And the Pharisees came to him and tested him 
by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Okay, so now he's affirming Genesis chapter 1 and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his partner. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, same sex uh, person. No, to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man, let not man separate. Jesus' understanding of marriage and male and female gender identity all comes from Genesis 1 and 2. And then he adds in verse 6. He adds in verse 6, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, when Jesus added those words, and he had the authority to add those words. What he's saying is, it is God who defines marriage, not man. It is God who is the author of marriage and not man. For man to try to introduce uh, some other idea of, of sex, sexual relationships and what marriage is all about, that is never that has never been God's intent and ought not to be. And so don't be don't get caught up in the argument that Jesus never talked about homosexuality or transgenderism. It's all rooted in Genesis 1 and 2 and Jesus is affirming his own creation. Because you know what? Jesus was there. And that's the bigger issue. It's not just that Jesus addressed this issue, but we need to understand that Jesus is a member of the Godhead. You can't separate Jesus from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Guess what? Jesus was there when God rained down wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. He wasn't separated from that event. Not only that, but Jesus, he's the author of Leviticus, chapters 18 and 20, that talk about the abomination of homosexuality. Jesus is the word of God, church. And we can't separate Jesus from the God, God, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit of the Old Testament. If we try to separate him, guess what? You no longer have a trinity. Jesus was there. 
Jesus is the author of this book. So understand that Jesus isn't silent on this issue. And there's one more thing we need to understand, church. When it comes to the Bible, it's one story and not many stories. Just like you can't separate Jesus from the Godhead, you cannot separate the words of the apostles from Jesus. The words from Paul, Peter, John, Matthew are the words of Jesus because Jesus is the word of God. They are Jesus' inspired words. So Jesus had a lot to say about sexual morality, homosexuality, genderism, because he has been there through it all. And so the church, us, God's church in this community, community, God's churches across this nation, we can't afford to be silent on this issue. But there are so many pastors today that I'm embarrassed to say that are choosing to be silent. They don't want to sound mean. They don't want to lose their their testimony to the lost world that they're trying to reach. And when we choose not to tell the truth about this particular subject and what the Word of God says, guess what? We're minimizing the gospel. The gospel has lost its power. We must be people of God who stand for the truth. God created sexuality. We don't have to be embarrassed to talk about it. God instituted marriage. He instituted marriage for a purpose. One was for procreation. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God wants us to have babies. He wants us to have lots of babies and grow those babies up in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. God instituted marriage for procreation. He instituted marriage for illustration. It is a picture of the gospel. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The picture of marriage is Christ relationship to his church, to his followers. Jesus Christ laid down his life for his bride, the church. And marriage, your marriage, my marriage, is to illustrate this truth. And you can only do it 
between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. So he did it for procreation, instituted marriage for procreation, illustration, and then sanctification. It's in marriage that we learn to become more like God. We're set apart from the things of this world, and we fulfill our desires to our husband and to our wife. God's will is our sanctification. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. People are wondering, what's God's will for my life? Teenagers like to ask that question. God, what's your plan for my life? What What is your will? Your will, my friend, is your sanctification. He goes on and says that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is God's will, that we live in holiness and not be sexually immoral like the world, but we are to be set apart. We are to be different. We are to be the salt of the earth. Our lives are to to be a difference, to be different from the world. This is God's will. Our sanctification. Now, as I'm talking about this this morning... I may not be watching my tone very well. But, you know, there there's people who are saying, okay, you know, this is God's will for us. But why do we need to make a big deal of this? Of this? We, need to, we need to focus on the main thing. This is a secondary issue, and it's a huge distraction. Pastor... Let's get off this subject and let's focus on the main thing, the gospel. And I hear that a lot. And there's pastors all across the country who are being faithful with the word of God and are being criticized with that very comment as well. Let's turn to the book of Jude. Jude, it is just before Revelation. It's only one chapter long. And we're not going to look at the whole chapter, but I want us to look at the first four verses and what Jude encourages the church to be doing. Verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now I don't have time to go into those first two verses, but I want to focus on verses three and four. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, okay? Notice that that sentence. 
Notice I was really eager to talk to you about our common salvation. What's that? That's the main thing. I wanted to focus on the main thing. But he says this. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now that word contend, I'm not going to try to um, pronounce the Greek word too hard for me, but it's, it's a word that's used in wrestling. I mean, this is a fight. This is something that we as a church need to grapple with, not ignore, not set to the side because we don't want to be a distraction to, from those that we're trying to reach. Jude says this, I'm appealing to you to contend for the faith, fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. We need to contend against those who have been designated for condemnation. Jude says these are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. These are false prophets. These are false teachers. These are, these are individuals who are influencing children and young adults, um, convincing our young people that it's all about love. And it's all about firming, affirming loving relationships no matter what it looks like. I mean, whatever the, the relationship might be, if there's love there, that's all that matters. What's that Beatles song? All you need is love? Well, I'm kind of the, of the Tina Turner persuasion. What does love have to do with it? God has defined love, and yet there are ungodly people who are perverting the grace of God and minimizing the gospel. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, let, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let marriage be held in honor above all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Listen, when God wrote, when Jesus wrote Genesis chapters 1 and 2, this was before the law. This was before the nation of Israel. When God Define for us what that 
he created them male and female, and he intended for male and female to come together in a marriage relationship, a husband and wife. That wasn't just for Israel. That just wasn't for the church. Church, church isn't in existence yet. This is for all people. This is God's moral law for all people. And in Hebrews chapter 13, he says, let marriage be held in honor among all. This is God's will for all humanity. But that's not the environment. Our children in particular are growing up in today. Let me read to you from this letter. Government schools across the U.S. have grown much more aggressive in teaching students that they may be gay or transgender and that identifying as such is good for children's mental health. They teach that it is normal behavior and is embraced, is to be embraced and celebrated. Countless videos posted on social media, accounts like Libs of TikTok, have gone viral in recent months for showing LGBT educators and their allies uh, insisting that they have a right to indoctrinate children with the idea that characterizing homosexuality and transgenderism as sin is hateful. To date, there are no laws that prohibit teachers, counselors, or clergy from proselytizing for homosexuality and transgenderism. Church, the moral and ethical decay of the world is traveling at hyper speed. And the world wants to silence the church and the church has done a great job in accommodating the world. John MacArthur says this in his book, Ashamed of the Gospel, When the Church Becomes Like the World. He says, the church has accommodated our culture by devising a brand of Christianity, of taking up one's cross as being optional or even unseemly. Indeed, many members of the church in the world suppose that they can best serve God by being as non-confrontive to the world as possible. Church, we have a responsibility to tell the truth on this issue. And I go back to Jude chapter 1. When Jude wrote this letter, he wasn't writing to the pastor. He was writing to the church, to the members of that church. He was addressing all those who have come to a saving relationship in Jesus Christ. And he said, we need to contend for the faith against certain people designated for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 
We need to be people of love. But we need to be people of the right kind of love. We're all familiar with the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let me read verses 3, 4 through 6. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. We can't afford to rejoice in wrongdoing or about the wrongdoing. Homosexuality, transgenderism, um, all other types of sexual immorality, it's wrong. Love rejoices with the truth. saying all this, and if you were to confront an ungodly individual who um, is um, perverting the grace of God, you would probably hear them quote their favorite verse. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you not be judged. But if you know, they would just read a little bit further in Matthew chapter 7 in Jesus' words. In verse 5, Jesus tells us how to judge properly and that we have a responsibility in doing so. And he goes to verses 15 through 19 and to be aware of wolves in sheep's clothing. And we can't do that unless we're observing. We're seeing truth from error and speaking to that. Sharing the gospel requires us to talk about sin that separates us from God. But there, there is forgiveness and restoration for those who struggle for those who will repent and walk according to his will and to his way. That's our message. That's that's the hope that we can be that we can give to people who are struggling with this issue. First Corinthians chapter six. I'm almost done. Verse nine says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who are the unrighteous? Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. My friend, there's no homosexual, homosexual, there's no transgender 
struggling with genderism, there's no person who is beyond the grace of God. And that they would just choose to respond to the gospel and repent of their sin and follow him. Their sin, their ungodly identity, lifestyle, the choices that they made, that can all be washed away. But the only hope is the good news of Jesus Christ. I want to close with this story. It was a story written by John Carroll's in 1611 called Hedge of Thorns. And uh, recently, uh, a, a lady by the name of Mary Hamilton has rewritten this story and has illustrated this story. And it's it's a great children's story. I highly encourage parents to purchase a copy of, of this book and read it to your children. And uh, Vody Bachman Bachman uh, said that uh, he's read this story to to each of his children. Uh, you can find the story um, on YouTube. But um, the story goes like this. There was um, a brother and sister who would walk every day to school right next to this huge hedge of thorns. And they never knew what was on the other side of the hedge of horns, thorns, but they were always, they were constantly curious and were trying to devise a way to, um, to see what was on the other side. But every time they tried, you know what? They were pricked by those thorns. Uh, so one day, brother, he had the, he had the idea that he was going to kind of cut a hole in the middle of these thorns and that he was then going to push his sister through that hole, the hedge of thorns. Well, that happened. And uh, yes, uh, the inevitable happened. Uh, She got pricked and she started screaming and brother pulled her out and she had these massive uh, scrapes on her face and she was crying and they had to go home and he knew that he was going to be in trouble. The, the brother, and boy was he, and you know, just wait till your father gets home, he heard from his mom, and when dad came home, he didn't have a word to say, all he did was went to uh, care for his daughter, dad didn't say a word, the story goes on, and says, well the next morning, dad got up, and, and uh, went to his son, and said, come with me son, and he took his son to that hedge of thorns. And he got his son on his shoulders and he lifted him up so that he could see over that hedge of thorns. He always wanted to know what was on the other side. He asked his son, what do you see, son? son said, I see a huge chasm. And I can't see the bottom of that chasm. And the other side is very far away. Dad says, you're right. Set him down. Son asked Dad, Dad, why is this hedge of thorns here? He said, well, many years ago, there was a father who had two children, 
and uh, those children were caring for some sheep. And as they were caring for the sheep, one of the sheep got away and went towards this uh, chasm, this, this, this cliff. And that sheep fell over, uh, fell over the cliff. And the daughter, uh, in trying to rescue that sheep, um, fell over the cliff as well. And as she was falling over the, the cliff, the brother tried to uh, rescue his sister, and he fell over the cliff. And so there was a great loss of life. And dad had told himself he never wanted, ever wanted to have anyone experience that ever again. And so he built this huge hedge of thorns to protect future generations from going over the cliff. My friends, God has given us laws pertaining to sexual morality. God wants you and I to enjoy the gift of sex. But it is to be enjoyed only in the context of a marriage relationship. God wants you to be thankful for your identity, how, you, how he has created you in the image of God. And so when it comes to our identity and when it comes to our sexuality, God's built a hedge of thorns around those things. Not because he hates us. Not because he wants to make our life miserable. No, because he loves us and he wants to protect us. He wants you and I to walk the narrow path. And when we, when we live according to his will, he sanctifies us. We become more and more like Jesus Christ. And we can, we can say no to the temptations of this world that are out to destroy our life. My friends, we live in a very thorny world right now. And this world is getting thornier and thornier, narrower and narrower. But there's only one door. There's only one gate. And that's the narrow gate of God's word of God's plan for our life that he wants you and I to walk through. Don't be ashamed of the truth. Jesus had lots to say about biblical sexuality. The Bible is not silent. The Bible doesn't whisper about this subject. It is loud and clear. for our protection. May we be people of truth. May we be people full of grace, but full of truth and not be ashamed of it.
Let's pray. As I pray this morning, I know that there's people in your life that loved ones, family members, friends who are struggling with these issues. Would you pray for them this morning? Ask God to open a door for a conversation. Pray that they run into the thorny bush. God's trying to get their attention. There's a better way. Ask God to help equip you for the conversation that needs to be had. Father, thank you for the hedge of thorns. Thank you for loving us, opening our eyes to this truth. We haven't been perfect people. We know what that hedge of thorns feels like. We've experienced the consequences. But God, thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for washing away our sin so that we can approach others with humility having having encountered the grace of God ourselves. Father, you've heard these prayers. You know these concerned hearts. God, you want to use these concerned hearts in those difficult conversations. Help us, God, to contend for the faith. Because it is part of the main thing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.